2 Timothy chapter 4. If I understand correctly, the most rigorous, most in-depth, trying examination and testing that a United States military personnel can go through is the training that is required to become a U.S. Navy SEAL. In fact, there's one portion of the SEAL training that is called Hell Week. And the United States Navy says this about that week. It's actually five and a half days. Hell Week is the defining event of SEAL training. It's held early on before the Navy makes an expensive investment in SEAL operational training. Hell Week consists of five and a half days of cold, wet, brutally difficult operational training on fewer than four hours of sleep for the entire five and a half days. Think about that. Let that sink in just a moment. Hell Week, they say, tests physical endurance, mental toughness, pain, and cold tolerance, teamwork, attitude, and your ability to perform work under high physical and mental stress and even sleep deprivation. Above all, it tests determination and desire. On average, only 25% of those that apply and begin Hell Week actually make it through. It's the toughest training in the United States military. It is often, they say, the greatest achievement of their lives if they can make it through. It is a defining moment that these Navy SEALs reach back to when in combat. They know that if they can make it through Hell Week, they will never, ever quit And never let a teammate down. Over the years, research has been done to determine a common trait in those individuals who make it through Hell Week. But they can't find a definitive answer. They try to find a a common denominator. They are not necessarily the largest or strongest men, nor the fastest swimmers. But they say the one common denominator is a burning desire to be a Navy SEAL. Trainees are in constant motion, running, swimming, paddling, carrying boats on their heads, doing log PT, doing sit-ups, push-ups, rolling around in the sand, slogging through mud, paddling boats, and doing surf passage in the cold, icy February waters off of Coronado Island in Southern California. Being still can just be as challenging as moving around when you're standing in formation, soaking wet on the beach with the wind blowing, or up to your waist in the water with the cold ocean wind cutting through you like a knife. Mud and grit and sand cover their uniforms. Their hands, their faces, everything but their eyes. The sand chafes raw skin. And the salt water makes cuts burn. 
Students and trainees perform evolutions that require them to think, lead, make sound decisions, and functionally operate when they're extremely sleep-deprived, approaching hypothermia, and even while they're hallucinating. While trainees get plenty to eat, some are so tired and fatigued that they fall asleep in their food. Others fall asleep while paddling their boats and have to be pulled out of the water by teammates. Throughout Hell Week, their instructors constantly walking, parading up and down with bullhorns, enticing these trainees to quit. Mimicking the inner voice that tells you to give in to your physical pain. The instructors make it easy, even honorable, (laughs) for students to come out of the cold. All they have to do is walk up to the bell and ring it. The bell signals defeat. And they can sit, and I quote what the Navy says, they can sit and enjoy donuts and coffee in front of their suffering former classmates and all they have to do is call it quit and go ring the bell and I want to tell you this morning that I believe many a Christian and many children of God and many of us in this room have heard that same inner voice It might not be to quit on SEAL training, but it's a voice that calls out to us to quit on God and to compromise, to quit on our marriage, to quit on our integrity, to quit on our commitment and dedication, to quit on genuine, true, Jesus-focused spirituality. No wonder the Apostle Paul felt led of the Holy Spirit of God to write these words that we're about to read in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He was writing to the man that was his son in the faith. He had a special relationship with Timothy. It is believed that Timothy's daddy was a Greek unbeliever. He didn't believe in Christ. And that Timothy came to the Lord and came to knowledge of Christ and came to salvation through the influence of his godly mother and grandmother. Being from Lystra, Paul came in contact with Timothy in Acts chapter 16. And when he was a young man, Timothy forged a relationship with Paul. Paul became his spiritual mentor. Paul became his father in the faith and his father in the ministry. Paul became his trainer, if you will. And Timothy became his protege. And I want you to notice what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. If you'll look there, please, with me. Writing to this pastor, writing to his one-time associate, Timothy, Paul says this. But watch thou in all things. In other words, be diligent and be aware, be responsible in all things. Endure 
afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. Would you notice, please, ladies and gentlemen, the two words in the middle of the verse, endure afflictions. Paul is saying to Timothy, I want you to undergo hardship. I want you to be able to suffer trouble. It's interesting that it's the same Greek word used in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, where Paul previously in the same book but two chapters earlier admonishes him. He says, now, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's the same word. Endure trouble. Bear up under the pressure, Timothy. There are going to be hard moments and hard days and hard weeks and hard months and hard seasons even. And you must have the ability and you must determine in your heart and mind, Timothy, that you're not going to throw in the towel just because it gets hard. We realize that there potentially were multiple ways that Timothy was being pressured to quit and to compromise. He was a pastor there in Ephesus. He had been given a tough task. He had been given this charge to lead the people, to feed the people of God. And yet, he understood and Paul understood that around Timothy in Ephesus, there was quite a bit of opposition. Obviously, there was opposition from the Roman government. During this time, the persecution of the church, the persecution of Christians had become more popular and more heightened. In fact, we'll understand that about this same time that the apostles, both Simon Peter and Paul, would be executed around the same time. And so this this threat against the church was heightened. I'm sure Timothy felt that pressure. But then there was not only political pressure from the Roman Empire, there was pressure from the Judaizers, the religious community around Ephesus. These men who still held to the Old Testament law and, the, and the, the, those other man-made traditions that they had, they had encapsulated into the, the law of God and making it mandatory in order for them to gain some sort of righteousness with God. Timothy was being persecuted not just from the pagan Romans. He was being persecuted from the lost Judaizers who were self-deceived by their own self-righteousness. Paul knew there was intense pressure on Timothy to quit. Not just outward pressure. But gang, Paul was a human. Paul too had felt that same inward pressure to quit. And you do too. You feel that tug and you hear that voice that calls out to you to throw in the towel and to compromise. It is even believed that Timothy was jailed at least once as implied by the writer of Hebrews who mentions Timothy's release at the end of his epistle in Hebrews 13 verse 23. So here's Paul. He himself is in the Roman dungeon, the Mamertine prison. He realizes that he is facing execution himself. And he writes to his protege to fortify his spirit and tell him simply, don't quit. Don't quit. And ladies and gentlemen, as your pastor, 
and as your friend and as your brother in Christ, I realize, and I am no Paul, I am no Paul, but I'm a fellow soldier with you. And I realize that every day that you live in this world and every day that I live, that there is exterior pressure and internal pressure to sin, to throw in the towel, and to compromise on the Lord. And I say this to you, my dear fellow soldiers, don't quit. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure affliction. I want to say this to you this morning. There's never, never a right time to quit. There's never a right time to quit on your master. To quit on Jesus. There's never a time to sin. There's never a time to slide back on the Lord or your commitment on the Lord. There's never, there's never a right time to compromise. There's never the right time to quit on your integrity. To quit on your morals. And we know that happens. Among those that name the name of Jesus. I know it's Sunday morning. But I also know the battles that you face and I face. Battles on the job for some of you. To compromise your moral integrity. To flirt with somebody that's not your wife. To communicate with somebody that's not your husband. In a way that's suggestive and flirtatious and sensual. To watch something online or on your phone that is ungodly and wicked. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about compromising your integrity. Compromising your integrity not just in moral areas but even in financial areas. Skimming a little bit here and taking a little bit there and covering up on the books. That's compromise. That's sin. That's wrong. And yet, so many fall prey to the lie of the devil and they compromise their integrity. It could be with a grade (laughs) in school. It could be with money that you've been given the charge of being a steward over. It could be with the marriage covenant that you have made with your spouse, your wife, your husband. And I say this to you, friend. There's never a right time to quit on your morals and on your integrity. I want to say there's never a right time to quit on your marriage. I challenge you this morning in the name of Jesus to be the husband that God's called you to be. To be the wife that God has called you to be. You say, preacher, you got real somber real quick. Yes, I did. Because ladies and gentlemen, I know just like you I feel the battle. And you and I have watched the casualties pile up one after the other. And many of you have been living the Christian life long enough to where you've seen it happen to your friends and your fellow church members 
and your loved ones. And so have I. And I'm a fellow soldier. And I'm challenging you in the name of Jesus. Just as Paul did with his fellow soldier and his brother in Christ. To endure hardness as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus. It's never the right time to quit. It's never the right time to quit on your church. Or to quit on your ministry. Or to quit on your involvement in the local church. It breaks my heart that one out of every ten pastors that start out in ministry will actually retire in the ministry. Do you know that the average age of the American pastor is 61? That's because that there are fewer and fewer and fewer younger men that are lasting and remaining in the ministry. They're turning away and they're quitting. And I say that it's become epidemic in America and in our culture. The average tenure of a pastor at a church is only three and a half years because they get discouraged or they quit or they turn and they run and they hop from church to church thinking that the grass is always greener somewhere else. And most of the time they get to somewhere else and they realize that that green grass that they thought was there was just astroturf. <laughs> The average length of time that the average church member stays committed to their church and to their place of service within that church is shrinking. That's why I sad to say, friend, that it's no wonder that in the average local church there are 15% of the people doing 85% of the spiritual labor. And that's why you have people getting burned out in ministry because they're wearing 17 different hats because there are others that are sitting on their blessed assurance that are doing nothing at all to advance the gospel or the kingdom of God. Because people quit. We get offended. We get our feelings hurt. We misinterpret things. We don't take it to Jesus in prayer. We react instead of pray about it, and we quit. We throw in the towel. We bounce from place to place. We withdraw, and when that happens, we begin to suffer spiritually. And ladies and gentlemen, listen carefully this morning. This sermon is not a cure-all, end-all, but it's just to get the discussion going in your heart and mind with the Lord Jesus, and just from a fellow brother and a fellow soldier to you to encourage you to keep going. Don't quit. Don't compromise. Don't throw in the towel. This passage before us today is filled with multiple reasons why there's never a right time to quit. But please, in conclusion this morning, please allow me to give you just three of those reasons briefly. If you're still with me today, say amen. I say first of all, there's never the right time to quit. Because the enemy is wanting you to buy into his lie. And I want you to notice verse 10, please, of this same chapter. Would you look at it? You see, the Apostle Paul at one time, listen, when he was there in Rome, he was not alone. We know what he says here in verse 10 is true. 
He points out in verse 11 that only Luke is there with him. But it wasn't always so. If you'll notice in verse 10, the Apostle Paul mentions a gentleman by name specifically. And he mentions a man named Demas. Do you understand about Demas that he's mentioned in other passages in Scripture and the epistles? Do you understand about Demas that he too was a close associate of the Apostle Paul? That he too had been hand trained and even hand picked by Paul to travel with him on his first and second missionary journeys? He was just as Timothy, a fellow brother and a fellow soldier. And now here he is. The Bible says in verse 10, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. The word forsaken there is a very interesting word. It means a willful desertion. Notice that please. It's the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he was speaking of God the Father abandoning him. It's the same word. It means to orphan, to abandon, to desert, to leave behind. And then Paul said that the reason, if you'll notice this, the reason that Demas forsook Paul in the prison and the reason Demas turned and ran is because, if you'll notice what he says, for Demas hath forsaken me because he, what church? He loved this present world. This, this, this present, literally it means this right now world. This temporary world that we see around us of culture and things and, and the glitz and glamour and those things that call out to us and appeal to us. That's why I left Paul. He loved this world. He loved the convenience. He loved the comfort He loved the ease more than he did where God had called him to be and the approval of God on his life. And it's interesting that the word for love here in the text is the word agape. Now listen carefully. You know what agape means. You remember what that word means. That word agape is is God's love for us and the love that we are to have for the Lord. That's the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. That's the Romans... 5-8 love. Remember that? And what Paul is saying here is that, hey, Demas forsook me. Demas left the ministry. Demas left his post, his God-appointed place that the Lord had for his life. The reason Demas left is because he, he had the same affection for the things of this world that he was supposed to have for God. In other words, he got his priorities out of line. And he put the world and stuff and materialism and ease and comfort. He slid God off of the priority list. And he placed himself really and the comforts of the world and the ease of the world. He placed that in the same position that only Jesus was supposed to occupy. If you're hearing me say amen if you understand what I mean by that. You say, I'll tell you what, preacher, Demas was a jerk then. Well, I'll tell you this, Demas was not the only one in history who's ever done that. And Demas is not the only one who's ever felt that tug. And heard that voice from the enemy calling out to buy into the lie. He loved this right now world, this world that's passing off the scene. 
And then he departed into Thessalonica. I remind us today what 1 John 2, 15 and 17. Love not the world, God said, neither the things that are in the world. Obviously, he's not speaking of loving people. We are to love people. But we are not to love this culture. We are not to be inundated and intoxicated with the lies and the deceit and the allurement of stuff. Position, popularity, ease and pleasure, materialism. He said, don't love this world, neither the things, the things, the tangible stuff that are in the world. If any man does love the world, he said, then the love of the Father is not in him. And we see that lived out in Demas' life. He was supposed to have agape love for the Father, but instead... He had agape love. He had that priority, passionate, intense, highest level of love. He had it for this world. And that's why he turned. He began listening to the wrong voices. And here's what God says in 1 John 2. He says that the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And this world, this present right now world, same word, passes away. Literally means right now it's passing you by. My boys and I, and I'm sure Erin, she doesn't mind, but she probably doesn't love it as much as we do. But we love going out and driving through the country and we look for deer. And then when we come to railroad tracks, sometimes either the guard will be down, the lights will be flashing. And so we'll sit there and here's what we do. All right, boys, count how many cars are on this train. You ever done that? You ever count the box cars? One, two, three, four. And here's the idea of 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Here we are, and we're sitting here, and we're enamored by the world. But it's just like boxcars on a train. They're just passing us by right in front of our eyes. And yet that's, so, that's what so many of us want to live for and want to spend our time for and give our pursuits after. And we listen to the lie of the enemy. It says to throw in the towel, back off, compromise, start missing church, start taking your money that's the Lord's and using it for selfish pursuits, start flirting with somebody that's not your spouse, it's okay, it's harmless, it won't hurt you. Start dabbling in things that you shouldn't watch and things you shouldn't be a part of. And, and, and don't, don't, don't worry about it. Just, just make sure you look over your shoulder. Ladies and gentlemen, listen carefully. If you're ever engaged in something that you have to look over your shoulder before you do it, it's probably a pretty good sign that you don't need to be doing it to begin with. Don't buy into the lie of the enemy. There's never a right time to quit. There's a second reason, and I want you to hear me carefully. First reason, the enemy is wanting you to buy into his lie. Second reason, and I want you to go back to 2 Timothy 4. Here it is. Somebody, somebody is counting on you to make it. 
Verse 9 of chapter 4, 2 Timothy, Paul said, Hey, do your diligence, Timothy. Do your diligence to come shortly unto me, please. The word there uh, literally means to come shortly. Do your diligence. It means to use speed. Make haste. Hurry, hurry and come. And then, and then if you'll notice what he says in verse 11, only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him. That's John Mark. Bring him with thee for he's profitable to me for the ministry. Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I've left at Troas, bring with Carpus, uh, 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 left at Troas with Carpus. When you come, bring with thee the books, especially the parchments. What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, I need you to come. Uh, I'd love to see you, Timothy. There's some things that I want to talk to you about and some things that, 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 that I really need to pass on to you. Plus, I need your companionship. I need your encouragement. Notice Paul's relationship with Timothy there. You see, uh, uh, some, somebody that's counting on you, it may be somebody who has poured into you in times past. We see their relationship in 1 Timothy 1 verse 2. Paul calls him my own son in the faith. 2 Timothy 2, 1, he calls him my son. Obviously, they were not biological father and son, but there was such a close-knit relationship. In Acts chapter 16, we see the beginning of Paul pouring himself into Timothy. I want to stop, stop, ask you a question this morning. Listen, who has it been that's poured themselves into you? Somebody has. Somebody's poured themselves spiritually into you. They may or may not be sitting in this auditorium, but for many, all you have to do to see that person or those people is just take a little glance around. It could be a mama or a daddy or a grandparent. Maybe it's a former Sunday school teacher. There's some men and women sitting in here and you no longer teach, but you used to. And there are others that you can look around this room and see lives that you've poured into. It could have been a coach or that teacher or that spiritual mentor who came along, God brought them alongside of you just at the right time in your life, and they're pouring, they're pouring, they're pouring, they're pouring themselves into you. They're counting on you to make it. They're counting on you to be true. They're counting on you not to compromise. And then sometimes it may not be somebody that's poured into you, but it could be somebody who God wants you to pour into. They're counting on you to make it. You see, there's multiple reasons why Paul needed Timothy now. Notice he asked for a coat for the wintertime because it was going to get cold there in the dungeon. It probably already was. He asked for reading material, and then he even asked for the scriptures because he mentioned especially the parchments. Paul needed that encouragement. He needed that friendly witness. Maybe at another potential trial. But he wanted Timothy there uh, to be there in the event of his execution. We don't know for sure even if Timothy made it to Rome before Paul's execution. And I believe it's likely that he did not since it's believed that Paul was executed in the summer of AD 64. So he may have never even made it to the destination. But Paul said, Timothy, I know, I know I've poured into you. But now the tables are turned. I need you to pour into me. 
And there's somebody, ladies and gentlemen, there's somebody that needs you and is dependent on you to pour into them. Don't quit. I'm talking to parents. Listen, parents. Some of you now are empty nesters. There's never a right time to quit. You say, well, Christian, my kids are grown now. I can compromise and quit, and, and it really won't impact them. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, listen carefully. This morning I'm telling you in Jesus' name that as long as you take this, as long as you live in this world and breathe this air, there's somebody, somebody watching your life, and they're dependent on you. And they learn from your influence and your example. There's some of you today that have grown children and now grandchildren that if you compromised and if you threw in the towel, I'm telling you, it would devastate, devastate, yes, even your own grown children. Don't compromise. Don't quit. Stay true. Stay faithful. Some of you have children, you have precious ones that are just about that big or that big or some of them are that big. Do you remember multiple times Preacher Patrick standing in this pulpit and saying, hey, here's what you need to do. You need to sit down and make a list of people that would be impacted if you were to compromise and quit on Jesus. Y'all remember him saying that? I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, my wife depends on me not to quit. She's poured into me. I need to pour into her. My boys are dependent on daddy not to quit. And when I think about compromising and quitting, her face comes to my mind. Andrew and Elisha, they come to my mind. Can I go a step further? These staff men that I rub shoulders with and I have the privilege of rubbing shoulders with day in and day out. These good men of integrity and character and heart for God and heart for you. And God's placed me as their boss and their pastor to lead and shepherd them. I think about you deacons and you you deacons' wives and your family sitting out here. I think about you Sunday school teachers. I think about all of our church family. And God has given me the privilege to lead and to shepherd, and at least for these last four years, to try to pastor and lead our hearts closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's somebody, there's somebody that if I were to quit and throw in the towel, there's somebody it would hurt and devastate. And I'm going to say this to you. Listen carefully. I'm no more special than you are. Every single person in this room, you have something at stake if you compromise and quit and throw in the towel. Please don't do it. Please. In the name of Jesus, stay true. And I'll give you this last reason, and there's multiple ones, but I close with this one. Preacher, why is it never the right time to quit? Because the old devil wants you to buy into his lie. Somebody's depending on you to make it. And then I love this one. Every breath we take gets us closer to home. 
I want you to look at verse 6. See what he says here. You see, gang, Paul is staring execution in the face. He says, I'm now ready to be offered. That means to be poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. The word departure there is the word for loosing. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, or because of this, there is laid, verse 9, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day. And not to me only, but to all them, all of you, all of us, that look and love His appearing. And I say this to you, gang, listen to me. We're too close to home now to turn back and quit. I don't know about some of you, but I know about others in this room. That the crowd of witnesses we know are a whole lot more on the other side than they are right here. Family members. Spiritual past mentors that have poured themselves into us, that have gone on to be with Jesus. And you know what they're doing? They're waiting on you. And they're waiting on me. It's too close for home to turn back and to throw in the towel. He says, the time of my loosing is at hand. It won't be long now before I leave this world, Timothy, and I stand before Jesus. And the word picture that he uses there, and it's so precious, that word departure is a word loosing. It's a word that was used for a ship that was loosing from its moorings and setting sail. And Paul said, I'm about to set sail and go toward home. It's also a word that was used of a tent that was taken up to go somewhere else. And our old tabernacles one day, and I believe soon, are going to be taken up and we're going to go somewhere else. And then it was used of a prisoner being released from his cell. And so many of you have described it to me at times, preacher, I feel like I, I just, we just feel imprisoned in this world. But one day that prison door is going to fly open and we're going to leave this place and we're headed home. And we're really going to be free. But then maybe my favorite word picture of that word is of a soldier that's coming home after a victorious battle. And we lay down our pack and we're home. Paul said, I have fought a good fight and I'm headed home. I made it through hell week. When the surf and the winds and the sand... Wanted me to quit. When I heard the voices and the bullhorn. Hey, why don't you just quit? You can get warm clothes. You can get dry. You can come. You smell the warm coffee. You smell the donuts over here. I didn't quit. I didn't go ring the bell. I stayed true. True. 